down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 508 of the Survival Podcast. It is September 10th, 2010, and it is a Friday. Since it's a Friday, you know what that means. That means you guys are going to be doing a lot of the talking because it's call-in Friday. I have about 10 of your calls uh, keyed up, and I also am going to close the show out like I did last week, or uh, the week before I think it was, with a little guest appearance from Peter Schiff that I've actually called off of YouTube with a MSNBC uh, Fast Money interview uh, about the economy, some things I think you need to hear. Great stuff today, all kinds of good questions from you. Remember, if you'd like to be featured on the show uh, like this, then you need to pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. And uh, leave a message, uh, two minutes or less, be concise to the point, ask your question, and if I can, I'll answer it on the air. Uh, it's probably good that today is uh, a day where you guys are going to do about half of the talking here because... Uh, you probably hear my throat's a little bit shaky and uh, got some congestion going on. My voice isn't all it usually is. I'll do the best I can for you folks. We got uh, 12 inches of rain total over about two and a half days from uh, Hermine. Uh, aftermath. Some of you guys have seen the flooding and the tornadoes that went on in the area. Uh, we were left high and dry and safe and uh, no problems, and uh, that was great. Uh, but what it's done is stirred up some kind of dadgone pollen source uh, in abundance and has uh, hit me with a little bit of an allergy. So I'm on local honey, doing what I can for it, and uh, I'll do the best I can for you. Before we get into your questions today, let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, let's take care of our sponsors, folks. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. Again, I said shelf, not self. Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative storage methods uh, for your preps with products like the Harvest 72 and the Cancellator that allow you to store canned goods in a way where you can eat what you store in store with your eat what you eat without thinking about it. With automatic food rotation, one of the coolest and most innovative companies I've seen in the prepper industry, someone that actually did something different. And I really like that. I'm glad they're a sponsor. Uh, they're with us for the next year at least. They uh, came on board, tried us for 90 days, and decided you guys were great, and they wanted to uh, remain a sponsor and have stayed for a year. Strong supporter of the show. They're sending me for some more things for uh, for review for you guys. I'll have a cancellator review coming out soon. You can check out my existing review of the Harvest 72 uh, from the Bug Out location in Arkansas when they sent me that for review. Um Check them out. I think you'll really like them, and uh, they usually have some kind of a special running. The best way to find that, go to our website, click on their banner on our website, and they usually have some kind of special going on for TSP listeners that's a little extra above just going to the site directly. So check out ShelfReliance.com. Next up today is the Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. Uh, what is a Survival Seed Bank? Well, a Survival Seed Bank is a collection of heirloom seeds that can be saved year after year and replanted by allowing crops to go to seed that can plant up to a full acre. It isn't really designed, though, for something that you'll get tomorrow and plant this spring. It's designed to be a long-term storage component of your preps. So just like you might buy, let's say, entrees or, or meat or vegetables from somebody like Providing Pantry uh, or Yoder's, uh, or Mountain House, and you would say, I'm not going to necessarily throw those dehydrated uh, or freeze-dried pork chops on the grill tomorrow, even though they'd be really good that way. They're for long, they're specially prepared for that long-term storage. That's what a survival seed bank is, so check those guys out. I think they belong in the uh, storehouse of every prepper. Uh, next up, I want to remind you to connect with us via all our social media stuff, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and make sure you check out our forum. We're rapidly approaching 6,000 members, and it's 6,000 real members, folks. There are no spammers on our forum. They are they are banned for sport. 
and none of the automated crap gets through. I actually think that we have like the the numbers are up over sixteen thousand now uh, on member numbers. But we have such great moderators there that keep that crap out of our forum, keep the pornography out, keep the Viagra crap out, keep the poker crap out, and keep keep all the uh, the third world nations that have guys that are just building links for people out. That we have six thousand real active members on that forum that are looking to connect with you and help you with your prepping. Uh, Last but not least, I want to remind you real quick here, uh, we're doing a special show for episode 550. Same number I gave you, 866-65-THINK. Dial that number and leave a two-minute message or one-minute message, anything less than two minutes, on what the Survival Podcast has meant to you, how it's changed your life, how you're living that better life today because of the things that we talk about here. And not just me talking on the air, what the forum has meant, what the people there have meant, what the entire community has meant, because this is not just about the show. It's about thousands of people coming together and sharing information. We'll talk about that more in response to a question uh, later on today. Um, one more thing. Uh, if you enjoy the show, if you listen every day and you spend an hour with me and you think I do a good job, consider supporting the show as a member of the Members Support Brigade. Uh, that's $50 a year. That comes out to about $0.20 cents an episode. It's actually like $0.18.3, cents. <laughs> just to be a bean counter there for a second. Uh, so if you think this is worth two dimes every time you, you sign off and you think, okay, that was a good show today, consider doing that. And in return, you'll get discounts to about 20 different vendors. You'll get a bunch of free videos. You'll get over $100 worth of free downloadable uh, e-books and a bunch of other really great stuff. Um, couple benefits alone in there are worth the entire price of membership for two years. Uh, just the Safe Castle Discount Club that's free and the uh, Western Botanicals Discount Preferred Membership that's free, that's 79 bucks by itself for a $50 a year membership. So think about doing that. Went a little long today, but I had some stuff to explain. So, uh, And I really want to make sure you guys are calling in that number for the special show on 550. Listen to our one-year anniversary show. I'll link out to that today so you guys can get an idea what that's like. It was a really special show, and maybe one day when we do 550, I might need it if my voice is like this. So let's go ahead and take your first call. And uh, remember, if you want to be heard, 866-65-THINK. Hey, Jack, this is Ridge Runner from the forum. I uh, got a quick question about um, permaculture. Um, what, what is the would you would what what would be your recommendation for the first step uh, in getting your permaculture um, set up started? Um, appreciate the show and uh, keep them coming, man. Thanks. Well, thanks for calling in, Ridge Runner. Um, it's a great question, and I think it's probably one a lot of people have, and I don't think the answer maybe will be as exciting as uh, folks would hope, because most people would think it's selecting your plantings and things like that. Really, it's going to start out with good, solid design work. You are looking at a blank canvas, and if you were going to paint a picture, you would first decide what kind of picture you want to paint. Maybe you'd want to paint a picture of a city with a bridge going over a canal, like a Venice scene or something like that. And you would start allocating space mentally before you laid any paint on the canvas. You would decide that there would be a building here and you know how that would fit in and how it would scale out and you would you would realize the canvas is limited in size so the size of your building has to fit the size of your canvas relative to the other things that you're going to paint and maybe you would even freehand sketch it and and uh, uh just some basic outlines even if you're a freeform painter and kind of erase some stuff until you got it scaled the way that you wanted because once you start laying the paint down it's hard to change things Right up until that point, you can change anything because it's just a design. It's a mental concept. That's how permaculture works. Your yard, whether it's 80 acres or you know eight tenths of an acre, it is uh, you know it is limited, and it has certain limitations. And those limitations are not just spatial; they're also energy wise. So your first step is to make a sketch of your yard and pattern your energy flows. Uh, for summer and winter both. Where's your primary wind from in the summer when you might want to block it? What is your sun, how does your sun arch through the sky in the summer when it's high overhead? Where is it shaded? Where isn't it not shaded? And it's more important than just, that's kind of a shady area, that's a sunny area. How long is the sunny area exposed to solar radiation? It may be too long for certain plants. It may be not long enough for other plants. You need to look at that and you need to design First, just energy flows. And then the winter, the same thing. Your sun's going to be lower in the sky. How's that going to change the shadows? Uh, in winter, wind is, uh, is cold. 
and you may, you know, need to block it to prevent uh, areas where maybe a plant could handle cold temperatures in your environment, but plus the wind and plus shade would be too much for it. So you need to think about all of these things and come up with a good uh, energy flow diagram of your of your property first. The next thing you need to do is design your plantings, but not from the standpoint of, I'm going to put an apple here, a pear here, a grape here, a kiwi there. You can have all these great ideas, and it's good to brainstorm with them and think about them because they'll help you uh, with that. But what you really need to do is say, okay, well, here's where I'm going to do my high canopy trees. Here's where I'm going to do my low canopy trees. This is how I'm going to transition into an herbal, uh, an herbaceous layer. Uh, right here is how I'm going to bring in some vining crops. Over here, I've got this opportunity to do this. It's going to be lower land, so it's going to be wet. So I'm going to bring in. So you want to type crop everything on your diagram. So your diagram shouldn't look like apple trees. It should look like high canopy trees, uh, you know, uh, secondary canopy trees, shrubs, bushes. And just design it that way on paper. And then, here's the beauty. Then you don't go out and buy stuff just because you think it's cool. You find, okay, I'm ready now to add some shrubs to this system. And then you shop for shrubs. And all of a sudden you start putting it together more like a jigsaw puzzle. Pieces fitting in. If you don't do this, if you don't make this your first step, as laborious as it might seem, what happens is you end up with everything unbalanced. You end up with a tree somewhere that's going to be freaking 30 feet high someday, casting a shadow into an area that you've allocated for kind of your, your, your basic, you know, produce garden area. And, and, you know, for the first five years, it doesn't matter. And by year six, you're starting to see one side of that garden not produce very well during the summer because it's too shaded. So you have to design all these things out, the way shadows lie, the way wind flows, the way uh, energy flows throughout that system, then designing your components, and then match the species to the components based on your bioregion. So now I'm shopping for shrubs, and I'm living in uh, Area 7, and I know that I'm looking for shrubs that can handle Zone 7. And maybe I can push it. Maybe I can do something that's supposed to only go to Zone 8, but I've got a rocky outcrop, and I've got a place that's totally exposed to the sun throughout the winter, and I can use the the stones to sink heat into the ground, and I can provide some protection from the wind, but I can't do that stuff if I don't map these things first. So there you go. I mean, I can't give you a full permaculture design course in five minutes here, but that's the first step. If you do that, everything else will begin to flow. And again, don't focus on the species when you're doing the design. Focus on the plant types. Herbaceous, you know, uh, vining, ground cover, stuff like that. Once you have that defined, then you match your species to the application. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. We've been hearing or seeing a lot on this uh, farm bill. Was it S S five ten or whatever? I'd like to get your comments on it. I looked at the bill. The only thing I could see is that they have an exemption for small farms, but it only lasts a year, and then they're they're because I think that's what it said. Uh, you have a ha- you have a, a an ability to um, cut through the chafe or whatever and get to the bottom of it. Could you please explore this uh, farm safety bill and tell us if we should be upset or not upset? I know uh, a lot of a lot of people are upset about it, and uh, I know Monsanto supposedly could benefit from this thing. Anyhow, keep up the good work. Bye bye. All right, there. Um, first of all, to the caller. If I sound agitated at any point during this, it's not about you. Please don't see it that way. And I'm not going to try. I'm going to try not to sound agitated, but I'm going to be agitated because you're asking this because you already know the answer. I think uh, from some exchanges we've had. Um, here's the thing, and I did this last week, and I'm doing it again this week because this is like freaking Frankenstein. This thing won't go away. Senate Bill 510 is designed to provide safety in the food system. It is not a good bill. I am not a proponent of it. I do not like it. But what the alternative media is saying about this bill is absolutely, 100%, total bullshit. It does affect small farms. It does affect small commercial operations. And it does affect them in what I consider to be a negative way, putting an undue burden on them with documentation. That's what this bill is really about, is documentation so that if a single onion ends up in a Kroger supermarket in Dallas, Texas, and you eat it and get hepatitis, they can track it back to where it came from. In of itself, that is not a bad thing. 
The problem is the home gardener, or not really the home gardener, because there's no home gardeners in this, but the small farmer who might grow in his backyard, who actually is selling produce that's selling direct to the consumers affected by this thing as well, and they should not be. There is a provision to exempt them from the first year to give them time to get to compliancy, as the caller said. Um, you know, I don't like that. But if you're going to oppose this bill, oppose it for this reason. Now, why am I being so specific about this? Because I get about 10 emails a day still from people telling me that Senate Bill 510, if passed, is going to impede your ability to have a home garden, make growing organic produce in your backyard illegal, and make you handing a basket of tomatoes to your neighbor and him handing you a basket of peppers illegal. That is bullshit. And when you get information from someone that tells you something like that, please respond to them and tell them it is bullshit and to stop spreading bullshit. This is how bad bills get passed. People on the right side of the issue, for the wrong reasons, sensationalize the issue. They say things that are not true, and they get them from sources they believe to be factual, and then they play the telephone game, and as it gets passed along, it gets worse and worse and worse. And it goes everywhere, and then when they build up enough momentum to create pushback against the bill, the people that want the bill passed utilize the sensationalism, point out how inaccurate it is, and marginalize the opposition, and next thing you know, a bad bill goes through, because it was opposed for fictitious reasons versus factual reasons. This bill is also not the end of the earth if it goes through. It's not going to destroy everything. It's not tied to Codex. It's not part of the New World Order conspiracy. Most of the power, I would say 90% of the power that is given to government in this bill already exists. Most of the requirements in this bill for large farms already exist. What it does is take it out of the hands of multiple agencies and centralize it into a single agency as a cost-saving measure for government. Now, I'm all for the government saving costs, but I do think there should be a full exemption for farms under a certain size that sell direct. You want to oppose this bill? Tell every member of that committee you want to see that amendment on it, and until you do, you will give every last effort and breath and life in you to opposition against it and spreading the word about why it's wrong. They might, not necessarily will, but they might listen to that. If you say, you better not do this because I know you're trying to take away my tomatoes from my backyard, they're going to consider you a hillbilly hick, even if you think your information is valid, and they're not going to listen to you. And if you ever do build any momentum, they are going to marginalize you. It is very important on issues about liberty and freedom in our nation, if we are going to oppose them as a people, that we do them based on solid, actual fact. And not some bloggers... Six-level interpretation of a bill, and understand this, folks. This bill has been floating around as Senate Bill 510 and HB 875, I think, or 825 in the House for over three years in and out of committee. It has not come to the floor, and there's so much resistance to this bill. It's probably nothing other than a bill. It ain't going nowhere near the floor anytime soon. They ain't going to vote on it anytime soon, and this is nothing but... People that are blogging about stuff like this that mean well, looking for something to stir up, looking for something to talk about. That's what this is right now. You want to oppose it, oppose it for fact. Let go of the fiction. It does not affect your backyard garden. I'll say this one more time. At this point, when I get an email and I see SB510 in the subject line, and I look at the body, as soon as I see home... I delete it. I don't even read it. I can't take it anymore, folks. Please, read this stuff for yourself. Don't just believe something because someone sent it to you in an email. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Mike the Blacksmith here again. Um, me and a roommate of mine just moved into an apartment. It's actually attached to a really nice older couple's uh, property here. And they have several fruit trees. They have two Granny Smith apple trees and one pear tree. Um, at this point, pretty late in the summer, anything that's coming off the trees is either hard as a rock or a little bit past the due date. It's getting pretty mushy. But they still have a lot of produce. Um, so my question is, is there anything that I can do with these really, really nice pieces of fruit that would make them otherwise edible? Uh, I hate to let all this go away because uh, they're still loaded. Um uh, 
So uh, if you could get back to me on that, that'd be great. Thanks for doing what you do. I know a lot of people out there really appreciate it, me included. Thank you. Well, first of all, let me clue you in on something there, Mike. If those apple trees are both Granny Smith, then there's probably somewhere right around the neighborhood another apple variety being grown by a neighbor, so there's an opportunity for barter next year as well because Granny Smiths are not self-pollinating. There's very few apples that are. They generally need a different variety. Now, the, the reality is they may be both um, a, a green tart, apple similar to Granny Smith. They may be two different varieties, and they may be able to pollinate each other, but if they're both Granny Smith, there's probably a barter opportunity, so that's just something to key in on since they're productive. On the fruit itself at this time of year, I'm surprised it's even still there uh, after what we've been through this year with weather. Uh, odds are it's probably not usable for, for, for eating. Now, apples, if it's just at like They have bad spots on them, some bruising, some soft spots, maybe some worm damage. You can just collect a bunch of apples up, start slicing off the good parts, and you could either dehydrate that and use it later or use it for baking and things like that, or you could just eat it. I mean, you want to clean it and all, uh, but there's very little risk there. My grandmother, we used to have these apple trees. I don't, they were like some, you know, generic variety of apple that just showed up, and they were tart, hard. Uh, not very good for fresh eating. You might eat one or two of the premium best ones that came off the whole tree. Uh, but these are big, huge trees. They weren't suitable for picking. We had them on our, on our property in Pennsylvania. And, uh, she'd go out there, uh, you know, toward the end of the season when they would start to fall off on their own. And that's all she would do. And she'd end up getting, you know, maybe out of all the trees, maybe 10 pies that she would make, uh, by cutting them up. And of course, since they're not that, they're not a sweet apple, but you make a pie you're adding sugar to them and all, and they were great pies, and we ate them, and everybody was fine. That's about the only way that I know of you could salvage an apple that's past its prime, and I would think you could do similar things with a pear. If I might offer you another thing you might do with them, though, if you have a location that you're going to be hunting on this year, and we are allowed to uh, hunt deer over bait in the state of Texas, Uh, if you made a great big pile of those things out in a deer field, uh, deer will eat them. They don't care. So that might be another option for them. Those are the only things I can come up with. If anybody else has any ideas, please post them in today's show notes. Thanks for calling in, Mike. Glad to hear you and your buddy are getting settled in up there. I hope you're uh, enjoying your start to college. Uh, thanks for calling in, young man. Let's go ahead and take another call. Good afternoon, Jack. This is Eric from Arizona. Thank you for all you're doing and sharing. I find it very entertaining and enlightening. I wanted to share a garden idea that I picked up while I was in Ecuador this summer and thought I'd get your opinion. One family had put their small herb garden in a wooden frame and lifted it on some stilts because the area was often flooded. It often flooded that portion. Uh, so I thought this would be excellent for those of us with like a very limited backyard space. I also thought about combining that with the idea of mushrooms underneath it with it shaded and all. <clears throat> maybe drilling some holes to get some of that water to seep down and drip onto the logs to get that moist, dark, shaded area. Also, I wanted to know what your thoughts were about kiwis in Arizona. Thanks again. Looking for your input. Well, it's a uh, it's good idea there, the first one on the uh, elevated garden. If you look in uh, Mel Bartholomew's book on square foot gardening, he actually details... Uh, how to build raised beds that can be elevated on a table or on a platform or anything like that. As far as growing mushrooms underneath them, I mean, folks, that's permaculture in action. That's observation. One of, uh, perma, observe, observe and interact is one of the main permaculture principles. And what you're observing is, okay, I've, I've solved the problem of it being too moist by bringing my small herbal garden up in the air. Now I have a moist area that's also shaded. What grows good under there? Well, fungus does. So I'll grow fungi there in the form of edible mushrooms. So great idea, good tip, thanks for sharing it. Uh, the next one on kiwis in Arizona. Uh, this depends on what part of Arizona. Are we talking Phoenix or Flagstaff? Um, extremely different bioregions there, extremely different uh, climatic conditions there. If you're trying to grow them in the, kind of the hot desert part of Arizona, it's going to be very tough. Um, it's not that it can't be done, but you're going to need extensive irrigation, really good soil, some level of protection during the day from the sun, and the heat still might get to them. Kiwis are not a tropical fruit. We have a view, a view of that. 
Uh, and I guess a lot of Americans think of New Zealand as a tropical place. It is not a tropical place. New Zealand, of course, being the primary source of the little fuzzy kiwis that we get in our grocery stores. Uh, New Zealand is a quite temperate climate. It gets quite cold in parts of it. Uh, many species of uh, kiwi are actually native to Siberia and can handle temperatures well below zero in the winter. So you can try it, but I'm not real optimistic if you're like in Phoenix or Tombstone or something like that. Now, if you're up in the, like the Flagstaff, Black Canyon area, anything north of Sedona, um, where you get the cooler, even you know, summer temperatures, as long as you can give it good irrigation, good nutrient-rich uh, soil, and, and proper care, you should do very well with kiwis. If you pull it off in the desert, let me know. But if you're down in those regions, then you're better off looking to things like pomegranate. Uh, and maybe some citrus and things like that as, as a substitute for that type of a fruit, not really the same type of plant. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. Today I was at an old tractor festival, and it was kind of beautiful seeing some of these old steam tractors from the early 1900s, massive. They were only like 25 horsepower, but the torque on those things was amazing. Uh, but they also had a lot of vendors selling parts and um, variety of antiques. And I finally picked up something I've been wanting to pick up for a while, which is an old hand-powered drill. Um, explaining to my wife that, well, just in case we needed a drill and we didn't have any power. Um, that, along with an egg beater, are on my list of hand tools to find. I was wondering if you had any other recommendations for hand tools that would be useful. Um, perhaps you could do a show on the top 10 hand-powered tools one should have. A hammer, a saw, a drill, but what else? Okay, that's my question for the day. Well, I like the idea for a show. Maybe it'll be something that I'll look into and try to uh, come up with um, 10 to 20 hand tools that are would be highly overlooked and highly advantageous. I'm going to have to think on that one for a while. Off the top of my head, um, I'll give you some some things I think you definitely need to have. You mentioned a hammer, and you got to have that saws. I think every person should own a crosscut and a rip saw. You should probably also own uh, one of the two-man timber saws for cutting and felling trees, uh, but you need to learn how to use one of them. If you just go to a great big tree and start sawing into it, um, it won't work. What you actually have to do is use an axe to cut out the other side, cut your wedge, to create drop on the tree, and then you come onto the back side of the tree with that crosscut saw, and you cut into it. When I was a kid growing up, there was this big old beech tree. And uh, along this trail that was off the back of uh, my, my grandparents' property, and I was walking there with my father, I was a little boy one day, and I said, well, look, Dad, there's a saw blade in that tree. He goes, yeah, there's a saw blade in that tree. And he said, that saw blade got my butt beat. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, your, your uncle and I came out here with that, we were going to cut that tree down. And uh, we got the saw blade stuck in it, and it's been there ever since. And we never told your, your grandfather exactly where it ended up, but he knew it was gone, and we were both in big trouble over it. And we've tried to get it out, and we just decided it wasn't worth killing the tree. And it's been there for 30 years at that point, I guess, uh, maybe 20 years at that point. And it's still there now, at least as far as I know. The last time I was on that property would have been 2004, 2003. 2003, and um, it was still there then. Uh, so <laughs> you need to know how to use the tools, I guess, is the other part of this. Uh, other things that I think you should own, obviously a hammer and a good axe and a good hatchet. A hatchet and axe are not completely interchangeable as far as I'm concerned. Definitely a set of chisels. Uh, these are all things that you need to have. The additional thing, though, is you need to think about fasteners, like screws and nails and things like that as well. Uh, those are going to be your most important things. With that stuff and a good a good framing square and the knowledge of how to use that, a good ruler and the knowledge of how to use that, and some planes. I think those are your big ones. You can do almost anything with those tools. There's other things that would be good to have, but with that, at least from a woodworking standpoint, uh, you can go and, and, and do just about anything other than... Uh, turning, you know, felled trees into uh, into two-by-fours. That's something you need kind of a sawmill for. And there's ways to do that without electricity. I did it for a long time. Uh, I don't know that most people are willing to go through the expense and, and, and ordeal to do that. But let me give a think to that. Maybe that's a good idea for a show. Thanks for calling in with that one. Let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. This is Bill from New Jersey. I have a couple questions for you. First, how do you deal with a friend who's a good friend who you feel should be prepping uh, but feels that any prep activity is uh, black helicopter-ish, aluminum, foil hat? Uh, when I asked him about it, he said that my plan is to come to your house. So how do you convince them that they need to take any type of action? Also, second, um, any type of ham radio. I know this is type of some type of a long-range communication. What do I need to do to get into this, uh, this type of field? Is it something I can get the equipment and then just put away for a later date? And, uh, and finally, what makes you qualified for all the information that you give us on the air every day? Uh, it seems like you can talk about a broad range of topics, from the economy to gardening. And I just want to know how we can rely on the answers you give us. All right, thank you very much. This is Bill from New Jersey. Thanks. Bye-bye. You snuck three questions in. You did it quickly, so I'll answer them all. That's kind of a, a dirty trick there to get three questions in in one call. But let's start out with the first one. I'm going to be brief on this because I've talked about it before. The unwilling, if you push, will resist more. All right, you, you lead the unwilling, you do not push them. You lead from the front, not from the back. One thing, though, I would tell this friend is, if your plan is to come to my house when the shit hits the fan, because you haven't prepared and I have, you better read The Ant and the Grasshopper and understand that I'm the ant you are the grasshopper. And you're going to be standing out in the cold, and I'm not going to let you in because I'm doing everything I can to make sure that I have enough to provide for myself and my family and make them feel the pain. Um, they tell life insurance salesmen to kill the husband in front of the wife. And what they mean by that is, and back up the, back up the hearse and let them smell the dirt. And, and what a, a common life insurance sales technique, and I don't like this, but th it does work, is to say, Tom, I hear everything you're saying about why you don't need this product, but let me do something terrible to you. You're dead right now. You can't talk. And they turn to the wife and say, now what do you do? And when he goes, but see, no, 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 no you don't get to talk. You're dead. You're the primary breadwinner. Your income is gone. You're gone. You're not here to help. Your ideas are gone. There's nothing here. Ma'am, what do you do? And you need to do a little bit of that with your friend, making him feel that. The other thing is it's okay if people don't prep. It's okay because a lot of people aren't ever going to prep. But if you wanted to give them just a little bit of exposure, I'd say, you know what? Here's what I'll do, bud. I, I, I will pay you 25 bucks for a case of beer or a six-pack or whatever it takes to do it. Um, it's reasonable and you're comfortable doing. If you'll try an experiment for me, all I want you to do is live from Friday until Monday, Friday night when you get home from work till Monday morning when you go back to work. I want you to live that way with no electricity in your house and no water. That's it. Now, I don't even want you to worry about your food so you can leave the electricity on. You just can't use anything. You got to put tape over your, your light switches or, or outlets or whatever. Whatever it takes. Throw every breaker in the house except the ones that run your refrigerator. And you can't use the water from your sink. Live that way for two days. And understand that there's all kinds of little things that have nothing to do with big disasters that can make you live that way for 48 hours. See how you like it and decide if you want to do anything about it. Self-implose a water outage and a blackout. And if that's not enough, that's not enough. You just got to tell the boy, hey, look. I'd love to help you, but I'm not going to be able to if it's a really bad situation. You better do something for yourself. And you got to leave it at that. Um, the next one on ham radios. Ham radios are something I don't know an awful lot about because I've not gotten myself certified as a ham. I haven't taken the test. I did a little bit of studying. I was going to do it. I just haven't had the time. And with all the other things, it's gone way low on my priority list for the things that I feel I need. Um, but no, you can't just buy a bunch of gear and put it away for later without learning how to use it and without getting certified. Ham radio is a licensed frequency, and there are three levels of licensing, and at, there's different privileges with each one, but the big thing is knowing what to do, how to interact, having a call sign, uh, the etiquette uh, and procedure. These are, these are things that you need to know to be able to communicate with other hams. And in a disaster situation, while the ham guys are going, they're going to be experienced hams doing most of the chatter. And if you're going to interact with them and pass on information and gain information from them, you're going to need to know the proper ways to do that, what the different, how you switch between frequencies, where to find people, all that good stuff. Now, 
you could get inf- uh, receiving technology. You can listen all you want to hams uh, without any kind of a license. It's free to listen to, no no restrictions there. But if you're going to want to be able to transmit, you need to go through the certification, maybe find yourself a mentor, check out the TSP Ham Radio Club, bunch of guys that listen to the show. They're not directly associated with us or anything, but they're listeners that are hams that have kind of grouped together. They have a lot of information on that. I'm sure you can find a mentor there. Uh, last, why am I qualified? Well, I can sit here and give you my life story. Uh, there's an episode... Uh, that I did a long time ago that talked about how I grew up in the coal region and what that was like. You might want to listen to that if you really want to know more. Uh, there's a, a episode about my experience for six months in Honduras living in, as a member of the Army in the Aguan River Valley with a very primitive people uh, of that region of, of Honduras. Um, both of those, I think, have shaped my life experience to a large degree, but there's there's a couple things at play here. One is this this has been my life. My entire life has been focused on self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And not just as something I did, but something as I was always trying to do better, always trying to research, always trying to tweak, and I focused more on how to think than how many things I had. It wasn't about just storing a bunch of stuff because anybody can just store a bunch of stuff. How do I think? How do I maximize what is available? When I was dead broke and couldn't do all this stuff, I still wanted to be prepared. I grew up in a poor region. I learned how to live off the land from people that did it. I learned from you know people that immigrated from the Ukraine uh, in, in the early 1900s. And I was taught that throughout my entire life. And I did a lot of it on my own because the things I was interested in that they weren't, I just went off and did, and I had that freedom to grow up in the mountains and learn that way. Additionally, I would put it to you this way. If you judge a man by his words, you may not have understood what he said. If you judge a man by his actions, you may not understand his intention. But if you judge a man by his results, then you're judging him based on something that's concrete. And I would say the biggest reason that you can trust what I'm telling you is to look at the results of the thousands of people that listen to the show and have actually done the things that I've said and the positive impact on their lives and their preparedness that it's had. And I think that maybe the most important thing is when I don't know, I will tell you. Like when you ask me about ham radio, I can't give you a whole dissertation on ham radio other than I need. I know you need to know this stuff, and I need you know you need to go take a test. And I can't tell you exactly how hard it is or what you need to know or how it works because I did a brief little study on it and decided I didn't have time for it right now, so I don't know. The other thing is when I make a mistake, and I do occasionally make mistakes, I'll generally come back on the air and say, hey, I made a mistake, and I'm willing to admit where I was wrong and tell you, you know, that I've learned what's right. And I would like to believe that after doing 508 shows that I've crowdsourced a lot of this knowledge. And a lot of the knowledge that I pass back is from the audience themselves. Why? Observing what you guys have done. And you said, well, I tried this and it didn't work and I tweaked it this way. And then I share that information back. As for how I can talk about it, it is a gift. It is a gift of recall and intelligence and knowledge thirst. And I don't like to talk about myself that much. Well, you don't hear a lot about my qualifications, but you know, you can't have a PhD in prepping. You know, it doesn't actually exist. Everybody that, that that is good at this industry and good at preparing and good at everything from primitive skills to, to urban uh, prepping is self-taught to a large degree and, and collective wisdom. And if you wanted to know how to survive in the Amazon, well, you'd go ask a native that grew up there. I know how to survive in America with very little because I grew up in America with very little. Um, That's the best I can do for you there. But my big thing is judge the results. There's a lot of people doing what I do now. There's nobody doing it back when I started. There's all kinds of prepper podcasts and and survival podcasts and things like that out there. I'm not putting anybody down. But if you look at the results, how big is the forum? How active is the forum? What kind of people, how many people are coming into the forum that have never done these things and then learning how to do them and applying to the, applying them to their lives? The survival podcast has become a collection that's not just people that have done this their entire lives. It's become a collection of people that many have never done any of these things. And because of the community and the show together, and it's not just about me, 
It's about the forum. It's about the blog. It's about the interaction with other members. It's about the meetup groups. It's about what everybody does together, the crowdsourced knowledge. That's what it's really all about. That's why you can trust me, because I'll tell you when I don't know. I'll tell you when I was wrong. Tune in Monday. I'll be telling you about being wrong on something uh, when I make a correction for, for you know feedback Monday. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've lived it. I mean, that's the best I can do for you. I've lived it. I've lived these things. I've tried them. I've done them. I've failed. I've tweaked. And I've succeeded. And I'm sharing what I've learned from action versus just thought. And I also, when I'm talking about something that's like a factual-based thing that's like a report that came out that says this, I, che I generally try to fact-check the hell out of stuff before I tell you one way or the other about it. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. I went 10 minutes on that because you tricked me with three questions. Hello, Jack. I had a comment, uh, question for you. My buddy was telling me that during an emergency, the federal government cannot take your firearm from you. Um, I was telling him that it's probably better to go with a concealed firearm. Uh, but he's convinced that there's a new federal law that says that in the case of an emergency, I guess it was passed after Katrina, the federal government cannot take, or state and local government cannot take your firearm for you, so he feels more comfortable with his AR-15 platform, and I was telling him they won't take that gun from you. Well, your friend isn't wrong, and you're not necessarily wrong either. What your friend's talking about is a law that was passed in response to Katrina. It was passed in 2006, and it's the Disaster Recovery Personal Protection Act of 2006. It was actually passed by overwhelming majorities in the Senate and the House. Um, I believe that it was like over 80 votes in the Senate. That, that were yes on this uh, this law. But let's talk about what it actually says and what it does not say. It says that in during a time of disaster that the federal nor the state or local government can take away your gun. It does say that. Um, as long as it was already legal for you to possess that weapon in that area. So if you had to travel during a disaster and you went through you know, a place like California and you had to go there and you went to an area where an AR platform was illegal already even if the disaster was still going on there as well, then the local authority could take that weapon under their own existing law. So it doesn't make it basically a free-for-all. You can have anything you want. It says that if the weapon is legal for possession before the disaster, it can't be taken away because of the disaster. Now, that might make your friend feel really good about it. I'd feel better than I did before 2006, but see, we already had this thing called the Second Amendment. That should have been self-freaking-evident. Government can do anything it wants. It can immediate, you know, the, the president can declare an emergency powers act suspending the freaking Constitution in a time of sufficient crisis. People are more likely to remain armed and able to protect themselves in a crisis today than they were before this law. Yes. Is there still a potential for a weapon to be taken from you? Yes. Because the government will break its own rules whenever it wants to. But this does help. One important thing. If you are stranded somewhere and the government is evacuating you, They, during the evacuation and transportation, can, in the words of law, temporarily confiscate the weapon. So let's say that you're uh, out in a, in a street somewhere, your house has been destroyed by whatever, and the government comes to help you, and they actually mean to help you, and they have this truck, and they say, get in and we'll take you somewhere. If you're armed, you have to disarm when you get on that truck. If they choose to do it, which they probably would, they are supposed to give it back to you when you get wherever the hell you're going. But if you are now staying in a government shelter, it may not get back to you. And we all know how the government is about getting property back to people. They ain't real, real hip on it. So as long as you're not utilizing government facilities, government transportation, the weapon's already legal. Under this act, you should be 100% protected. But I'll tell you what I would do. I'd have more than one weapon available to me, and I'd have some of my weapons that I would consider um, losable. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not losable. Uh, God, sometimes the word just escapes me. Sacrificial. You know? Sacrificial is the word I'm looking for. I uh, might even have some beat-up old stuff, and if they came looking for it and say, hey, do you have any guns? I'm not going to say no. If I say no, they're not likely to start checking I'm likely to say, yes, I do. I have weapons to defend myself. I got this old beat up 
single shot shotgun and this old high point nine millimeter pistol and uh, maybe this cheap old SKS that arms our home. And I got this couple little boxes of ammo, Mr. Fed. That's what I got. If they want to take it, I'm not going to have a war over it because my real armament's going to be concealed. Um, but I also worry about people that think, oh, I have my AR platform if the shit hits the fan. If you run around with a gun in the middle of a disaster, you're a target. You need to be concealing everything anyway, not just guns, resources, what have you. I think your friend would do well to... Uh, Check out the podcast I did on defensive positioning during a shit hit the fan. I'll put a link to that episode as well in today's show notes. But he ain't wrong. He just trusts too much in, in law that it's going to stand no matter what. There's always places where uh, existing protections have been uh, have been overridden by government action in time of crisis. I wouldn't trust it fully. But I, I would stand under it. I mean, if I was trying to be disarmed and didn't think it was right, I would cite the law and I would state, I don't, you know, how are you able to do this? But once they said, look, we're either taking them or we're going to take you down, I'm not going to have a battle with, uh, with guys that are really just trying to do their jobs and many of them don't really want to. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. My name is Rob. I'm calling from Mount Sterling, Kentucky. I just moved here about six months ago from Los Angeles. I found your show. And uh, I want to say thanks, man. You really got me thinking in the right direction. My question has to do with uh, portable generators. My family, uh, we're looking to purchase a portable generator in case power goes out this winter. And uh, I've never gone there. I'm not sure what to look for. Uh, I don't know how much, uh, you know, what's really necessary. I know the prices uh, vary quite a bit. Uh, if you could give me a little bit of feedback and input, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate what you're doing in your time. Bye-bye. Well, this could be a really long answer, and I don't have time for a long answer in today's show, so I'm going to give you a short one, uh, but an accurate one. Number one, get a generator of some sort and some kind as soon as you possibly can, even if it's something that's like a 2,000 uh, running watt generator. It at least can keep your food from spoiling uh, with your freezer refrigerator set up. Make sure it's enough to run that. But really what you want to do is you want to determine how many, how many things in your house you want to run, uh, what the running wattage of them, th those items are, and what the amp draw is, because those that's a, that's another thing. I mean, if you have a you know a 30 amp capability circuit on a generator and the wattage is sufficient, but you're trying to draw 50 amps, it's not going to work. There's just a limitation to what a generator can do for you. Also understand a generator is always a short-term solution to a problem. It it can't be uh, you know a, a, a two-month, three-month solution for you really, other than running it intermittently for things like keeping a refrigerator and and a, and a freezer uh, cold and things like that to keep food from spoiling during a, a critical period, or If you want to cool your home with a generator, you're going to be much better off buying a small window unit air conditioner. Gener uh, designate one room you can seal off as your cool room uh, and, and, and power that um, that uh, air conditioner. I definitely think that everybody should look at owning at least two generators. Two is one, one is none. Maybe one small one for, for applications like I, decided, I just, just described and a larger one for things uh, like running more of the systems of your home. The best way to do it is to get a qualified electrician involved, uh, have him come out, take a look at things, uh, put in a, a, a connection into your switch box for the items that the generator can run, and when your power goes off, you kill the power that comes from the main so that it doesn't come back up on and, and, and surge the system, uh, and then uh, you, you switch it over and run your generator that way, and that way you're plugging right into your, your home's already electrical distribution system, uh, and that's a much more efficient and convenient way to run things. The other things you need to look at with generators for specifications are fuel consumption and understand that they're going to give you full consu fuel consumption numbers running at a 50% load. And that fuel consumption will be higher than double if you're running at a full load, and you probably can't run at a full load anyway. 80 to 90% of what it tells you you can run at is probably going to be about as far as you're going to be able to push that generator over any long period of time without some spikes and things like that coming in. Um, But I would, if you really want to do this right, I would get an electrician involved 
and I would get him to spec out your minimum specs for the generator based on what you want to run. I would have a bypass switch put in uh, at your uh, at your circuit breaker, and I would do it that way. Once we move, I'm going to do that up in Arkansas. Right now, we just have a big generator sitting up there, and we run things ad hoc with extension cables and things like that. It's not the best way to do it. It really isn't. You get voltage loss and, 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 and amperage drop and things like that, and excessive draw on long extension cords, things that you can get away with running off a power grid with almost a limitless supply you can't get away with when you're running your own. For a lot of these reasons, I think a lot of the low-draw systems in our home, like lighting, we're better off setting up battery backup systems. A car battery can run a couple uh, lights for a very long time, especially if you run 12-volt lighting. That the battery's designed to run, and if you have that even that small generator during the daylight hours, if you know the power's still going to be off at night, you can charge those batteries up, uh, and that way the generator can be doing one thing, and the lighting can be somewhere else. And battery backups don't have emissions; they don't have noise. So they can go anywhere in the house. So a couple battery backup systems in conjunction with generators will give you a lot more mileage. Uh, I'll do a show on generators soon. We'll go through all this stuff a little bit deeper, but that's the best I can do in, in under four minutes. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is David Hicks from Alabama. Really appreciate the benefits of the Member Support Brigade. My question is I travel a lot for business here in the state of Alabama, so sometimes I'm three to five hours away from home. What kind of things should I consider for my car bag or get-home bag or bug-out bag and other issues about meeting up with my wife who works closer to home? Thanks. Well, one of the things you got going for you is you sound like you're traveling almost always by car and you're within your own state. So maybe you're doing overnighters or something like that, but you're not getting on a plane and going to New York or Los Angeles. So that's going to make things a little bit easier for you. From a bug-out bag, get-home bag standpoint, you need to carry the same stuff that I would tell anybody else to carry. There's a lot of shows on putting together a bug-out bag and bug-out vehicle equipment. So maybe go listen to those shows and get some ideas for things that are maybe missing there. The unique challenge you have is being separated geographically by distance. And this is going to make documentation uh, more important to specialize than, than equipment. Uh, rendezvous points more critical for you uh, than most people. Most people, what they have to do a rendezvous, they're 20 miles away at most when both, both spouses are working. My wife and I were about 70 miles away from each other when both of us were at work. I think that was pretty extreme. I don't know a lot of people that commuted as far as I did and had a wife commuting in the opposite direction. Um, so it was a challenge for us. It would be an even bigger challenge for you. So having multiple uh, rendezvous points, you need to think if you're like, say you're located, I don't know where you're really at, but say you're in central Alabama and you travel all around the state, well, you need rendezvous points based on where you are and where the disaster is. There might be times where a direct uh a rendezvous route is a bad choice because the disaster is more prominent, let's say, to the northeast than you're in the northeast, and you've got to go around. So you've got to have bug out uh, routes and rendezvous points, and you have to be very specific with maps and numbers so that if you were to tell your wife, we will meet on Route 3, rendezvous uh, point beta, um, that it's clear to her what that is. So you have to have that mirrored documentation package, I think, is more important than anything else. You do need to think about reserve fuel, if there's any way you can carry some additional reserve fuel or increase the fuel capacity of your vehicle. Uh, if I were traveling like that routinely today and I was driving something like, let's say, a pickup truck, I would probably get one of the uh, toolboxes that has the reserve fuel tank underneath it. Uh, just to increase my carrying capacity, I would keep the damn thing topped off at all times. Uh, because you're mobile, and most instances, it's not going to be about you two rendezvousing on the way out. It's going to be about, can you get home? I mean, that's going to be the number one plan is wherever your wife is, she needs to get home and wait for you, unless you are in a true bug-out situation. But as we've talked about a lot in the past, most instances, you're going to be better off staying home. That's where all your stuff is. That's where all your preps are. That's where all your convenience items are. That's where all your comfort items are. That's your base of operations. You have a legal claim to it. Anything short of like a storm that's going to destroy your house, flood your house, or a credible uh, terrorist threat that's going to be a biological, nuclear, explosive event, uh, you're probably going to, you know, rioting that's spilling into your neighborhood might be another one. Anything else, you're going to be probably better off hunkering down. So your primary concept needs to be what a bug-out bag is for and a bug-out vehicle is mostly for anyway. 
to get home. It's about getting home more than it is getting out. So that's the best I can do for you, trying to keep this one brief as we uh, we go along in today's show. Uh, but maybe I'll do something specific to The Traveler as a new show as well. I'm looking for new ideas, and that's a good one we've had a lot of questions on. Let's go ahead and take uh, one more. Well, actually, not really take one more. We're uh, we're up to the end there. As a last call, I do have this uh, little four-minute piece of audio from Peter Schiff on the economy. Um, I'll let... Peter Schiff just speak for himself here, and I'll come back at the end, wrap the show up, and tell you my thoughts on what he has to say. I just think this is important. I think people need to realize that we have some tough times ahead and right into the very near future, at least according to Mr. Schiff. I'm not sure I agree 100%, but uh, I'll let the man speak for himself. He knows a hell of a lot more about economics than I do. Uh, let's go ahead and let's hear Peter Schiff, and I'll be back uh, in just a moment. Well, there's a lot happening right now in the world of weather, international affairs, and everything else. White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs is delivering his daily briefing as the markets brace for a big jobs report out tomorrow morning. The consensus for that report is that the U.S. lost 80,000 jobs last month. Unemployment is expected to go up, that unemployment rate to 9.6 percent. Peter Schiff is credited with predicting the market collapse that led to this devastating recession. He's going to be our guest now. and He's also, by the way, the author of the book, How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. Pretty cashy title there, Peter. What's what's the answer to that question? Well, we're experiencing the crash part right now. You know, I was listening to the press conference earlier. You know, when we're speaking about a recovery, we haven't had a recovery from this recession. We did have a stimulus, and as we spent the stimulus money, it created the illusion of a recovery. Let me but stop as you the there stimulus for a second, wears then. off. I'm sorry, let me just stop you there, because the press secretary said to all of us, as you said moments ago, that the economy is in a better position than it was last year at the same time, is it? No, it's in a worse position, because what happened is the stimulus, right, what it did is it exacerbated the misallocation of resources in our economy, and it's left us deeper into debt. So the economy is fundamentally weaker because the government stimulated it, and the, the, the problem is, as long as the government is stimulating the economy, it will never recover. One person in favor of stimulus is Christina Romer, one of the White House's chief economic advisors, just left that position yesterday. Peter, do you want that job? <laughs> well, no one needs that job. You know, if we shut down all these government agencies and government economists, we could have real economic growth. In order to have economic growth, we need less government. We need more capital. We need more savings. We need to be more productive. But the government uh, prevents all that from happening with the stimulus. So the White House says they're not actually looking to, to fill her seat right away. But let's just say hypothetically that you step into that position, Peter. What would be your first suggestion on your first day? Well, the government has to stop creating the problems. We have to understand that the problems with our economy is Americans have spent too much money, they haven't saved enough money, and we need to allow Americans to save more. In order to do that, they have to spend less, and then the savings could be loaned out to businesses so that we can produce more products and create more jobs. But in order for that to happen, the government needs to shrink. So we need to cut government spending dramatically, reduce government payrolls. Uh, you know, government has to be smaller because right now government is taking all the resources out of the private sector, preventing the economy from growing, preventing productive jobs from coming into existence. Well, if we, if we shrunk the government, we'd have more unemployment, wouldn't we, Peter? I mean, what well, exactly should we do, though? I mean, no. as, so you're saying no. If we shrunk the government, you had more people unemployed. Uh, where are we actually going to see the job growth that is going to help get Americans back to work? Yeah, well, we need productive jobs. Imagine for a minute if half the country were employed digging ditches and then the other half were employed filling them back up again. Everybody would have a job, but we'd have nothing to show for it because nobody would be making anything. So the only way the economy would grow is if some dick diggers lost their jobs so they can do something else. We need people that work for government to lose those non-productive jobs so they can have productive jobs. But the reason there are so many people unemployed is because the government is refusing to allow the markets to function. Government creates unemployment. They either do it by putting up barriers that prevent businesses from creating jobs, or they subsidize people to make it more lucrative not to take jobs. Peter, real quick here, are you telling us all hope is lost? I mean, is there anything on the horizon? You predicted one crash. Are you seeing another one on the horizon, or there, is oh. there an actual way to turn it around? 
Well, right now, we have to have a 180-degree change in, in, in policy. The way we are now, there is no end, because the more damage the government does with the stimulus, the more it wants to stimulate. So it's like they're trying to put out a fire with gasoline. The more gasoline they pour on it, the bigger it's going to get. We need a complete change. And I am hopeful that Republicans will win in November. I do believe that the, uh, the economy will be in much worse shape come November, so there can be some kind of a backlash. But the question is, what are those Republicans going to do when they get there? Because the Republicans were part of the problem when Bush was president. Yes, Barack Obama inherited a big problem. But he made it worse by following the same policies that Bush followed that created the problem. So we need some real Republicans that understand the government's role in, in this crisis and are determined to do what's right, which means shrinking government. And we can't have the Federal Reserve artificially propping up the economy with cheap money. We need to allow interest rates to rise. We need to allow assets to find their real price. We have to have markets determining home prices. We can't have the government trying to prop them up. And then we can't have the government bailing out all the firms that fail when the markets try to correct the imbalances. Peter, when people are talking about uncertainty, I guess you pretty much just summed it up there. That's what they're talking about. There's a lot of questions yet unanswered. Peter, we look forward to having you back again, talking more about the economy. Definitely one of our biggest stories, and we appreciate uh, your insight here. Thank you. Unfortunately, it's going to get a lot worse for the economy, so well, there'll be plenty to talk about. All right. That sounds pretty good. We'll, we'll keep talking about it, Peter. Thank you. Well, let me say a couple things here. First of all, when I said I don't necessarily agree with everything Peter Schiff has to say, I wasn't talking about that segment. Uh, there is nothing that you just heard in that little four-minute rant that I don't completely agree with 100%. I'm talking about some other times on certain things I've differed with the man on. Uh, second of all, I said MSNBC. This is Fox News. And third, who the hell is this reporter? I watched the video again after listening to the audio. I stripped out of it, and they never put her name up in this video. But that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds good. What? See, I, I don't understand even Fox News. I don't understand media people. I don't get it, folks. That The, the economy is going to get much worse, and her response is that sounds good. I just had to get that out of my system. The real reason I played that for you is there's a teachable moment here that's much bigger than the economy because it's right in your backyard, it's your back door, it's it's people in your family, it's the question earlier, how do I help someone that doesn't want to be helped? Um, we can learn from the failure of our government how not to have failures in our family and our friend relationships. There are times when you have a family member or a friend that's behaving irresponsibly with not being prepared for a situation or financially, economically, and if you're well off, there's a big tendency when that person's about to, you know, lost a job and needs money to throw some money in there to help them. Well, you're doing a personal stimulus, and I don't think it's a good idea. I think that we need to let people deal with problems because people have a remarkable resiliency in solving a problem if you allow them to. Now, let's say it's 17 degrees below zero and your grandmother has not been a prepper and you have. Should you let her freeze to death? Absolutely not. Um, but if it's about 50 degrees, maybe she could be cold for a day or two. I know that sounds hard, but you just might learn from the experience. It's bigger than that, though. It's mostly with money, and that's what the government's doing here. That's what the government's doing here is a money thing. Um, when you take a person that's in a financially strained situation because of their behavior, and you give them money, you reinforce their behavior. It's what the government's doing with our economy, and it's why we're not fixing the economy. And here's the thing, in both situations where you do it, it looks better for a while, and the person or the company or whoever digs the hole deeper because you've reinforced the behavior. When we do something and it works out for us, even if it's not perfect, we tend to do it again. So... That's what Peter's saying. He also had a really good objection, over, you know, overturned a really big objection people have. Well, cutting the size of government would make unemployment worse. Yeah, for a while until people went out and found something productive to do. Most government jobs don't produce anything. Now, there's effective and useful government jobs. There's police that defend us. There's fire departments that put out fires. There's mechanics that work on their vehicles so that they're functional. You know, but there's a lot of government jobs that if they just stop doing them tomorrow, none of us would give a damn. I can tell you where to start. How about this? How about we stop robbing America blind, go to a flat tax of like, I don't know, 15%, 12%, something like that, and get rid of the IRS because we won't need one because there won't be 500 billion deductions to, to analyze over. They'll just be income and tax. 
And we could have an IRS one-tenth. We could save a little bit of money there. That's a place we could start. How about we start in Congress? How about we start cutting some expense accounts? How about we start with general election funds where these guys get millions of dollars of public funds to run their campaigns and say, fund your own damn campaigns. I mean, there's all kinds of places that we could cut spending and cut the size of government. And yes, people in those situations would be unemployed temporarily if we gave them reasonable termed unemployment benefits six months and said find a job and if we got out of the way there'd be all kinds of jobs created and my method of starting out with cutting the IRS down to almost nothing and going to a flat tax would create the biggest economic boom this nation's ever seen in its history because it would become the most business friendly environment in the world overnight there's plenty that can be done but this is the big thing I want you to understand whether it's somebody in your backyard or the nation as a whole, when behavior creates failure, you can't fix it by reinforcing the behavior. And I like what Mr. Schiff said about the Republicans, and what are they going to do? For those of you that are like, there's a world of difference between Bush and Obama. No, there isn't from an economic standpoint. From an economic standpoint, both of their solutions are we can spend our way out of the problem. They might spend the money on different things. One might have spent more than the other, but both have grown the size and scope of government. And tried to fix problems with money. It's not about who inherited what. It's been this way for decades. We're paying for it now. Mr. Schiff's right. The only way out of this is to let the situation fix itself. And the more we try to prop it up, the more we try to stimulate it, the deeper the hole, and the more pain we're going to experience in the end. That's why you need to be prepared. That's why it's not about black helicopters. You can let every conspiracy theory in the world go. And our economy is still screwed. And the people in control of it are still making it worse. And they're going to continue to make it worse. And I still believe there's a big bubble in this. There is a potential for what's going to look like the greatest recovery ever seen. The greatest comeback ever seen. I don't know how long it's going to take. There is at least one more. When it happens, don't get swept up in it. It's going to hurt when it comes down the other side. It's going to be worse than ever. I really believe that. I'm not as much of a short-term pessimist as people like Peter Schiff and Gerald Salente are. I see this recovery somewhere at some point. Maybe 2012, maybe 2013. I don't know. But it's there. The cycle will continue. But what we've seen from every swell up is a worse slam down. And I want you to think about how bad the, 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 the recession is right now and how bad it was at its height and what being worse than that will mean for this nation. Uh, don't leave me to leave you on a downer on a Friday because you are in control. You have the choices. You have plenty of time to make the right decisions. Do the things to solidify your life so you can live your life on your terms no matter what the clowns in Washington or your state capital or across the street from you do. And remember, you can't fix a problem by reinforcing negative behavior. With that, I will sign off. Hope my voice held together pretty well for you. This has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you. Nobody up there cares